Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good, uh, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Geert, and uh, once again, we're, uh, I'm your host for today on NBN. And uh, today we are joined by Dr. Nathaniel Morris, uh, historian at UCL. Uh, Nathaniel, so, uh, you're very much welcome. Uh, I'm very glad you're, you're here. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Great. So we'll be talking about uh, his uh, 2020 book, Soldiers, Saints and Shamans. Uh, um, Indigenous Communities and the Revolutionary State in Mexico's Gran Nayar, uh, 1910-1940, uh, published with Arizona University Press, and uh, uh, will appear next spring in paperback as well. We uh, just heard this week, so that's, uh, that's very nice. Um, Nathaniel, maybe uh, let's jump right in. What, um, could, you, could you tell us about your book? Um, uh, what brought you, uh, in a broader sense, to study, uh, to study the region, and how did you come to write this book finally? I mean, it um, all started, I guess, uh, at some point in the early 1970s, um, when my dad's half-brother, on one of several trips around the world, um, met a woman from the state of Nayarit in uh, the far sort of west of Mexico. Um, They fell in love, eloped, um, had various adventures along the way, but ended up um, back in Nayarit, uh had a bunch of kids and i grew up hearing stories of my long lost mexican family um who i eventually went out to mexico um to meet i fell in love with with all of them and the region in which they live um it helps that they live on the like shores of a volcanic crater lake and it's exceedingly beautiful um in the foothills of the sierra madre occidental mountains um I met um, at my cousin's bar um, quite a few Wiraritari, um, Wichol, um, indigenous people. Um, and I was studying history at the time and I asked them a bit about like how the revolution went down. Um, and they told me, you know, some stories of um, kind of semi-mythical revolutionary bandit leaders who'd roamed the mountains and um when i looked for a book when i got back to the uk uh, about this history there was nothing to be seen and i figured aha okay maybe this could be a project um for for me maybe i could maybe i could research and write this history um and so it started off um like that and and very quickly the project expanded because i realized that 
to write the history of this mountainous region um, where four states kind of meet um, in right in the middle of, of this sort of confluence of four different Mexican states, um, Nayarit, Jalisco, Zacatecas, and Durango. Um, it wasn't enough to just write a history of of the, the Nayarit part of the mountains and of the Wirarica and Nayeri or Cora people who live there. I also needed to include the Otadam or Tepewano people who live just on the other side of the state border in Durango. Um, also the Viraritari who live in Jalisco um, and also the, the Mexicanero people who um, are the smallest of these four indigenous groups um, and who kind of live scattered um, between various different uh, communities, like very small communities, um, right in the middle of all of them. So like, because there was as much contact between, um, you know, the indigenous people living in Nayarit and their neighbors in Durango, in fact, there was more contact between them than indigenous people in Nayarit and people on the other side of the state of Nayarit. You know, I had to kind of take this area as a whole. which then required, I, I quickly realized, doing a huge amount of travel because it's a really, really mountainous, fairly remote area. Um, most of the roads are unpaved. Um, a lot of the roads are actually not roads at all. They're like dusty mule tracks in the summer and kind of swamps in the winter. And um yeah not only can you not get a car across but sometimes you even struggle with a mule so i walked I hitchhiked um took the odd bus um couldn't afford to take the the little cessna airplanes that um, missionaries and uh, government functionaries use um so it was a real kind of slow research project um very much rooted in in traveling, you know, quite large distances across this really difficult um, but very beautiful landscape, um, which doing my research as I was uh, right in the middle of some of the fiercest uh, moments of the kind of local drug war, um, yeah, was was not always easy. There were roadblocks and random police checks and occasional gunfights and assassinations and um you know sometimes i'd be planning to go and do research in a community and um people would say ah right now you probably don't want to go there um maybe you should just stay here for a couple of days and um you know that that kind of thing happened a lot um because the area i i found out on you know Many, many different parts of that area are deeply kind of embedded in um, the drug trade. They are major opium poppy growing zones. Um, they used to be big marijuana producing areas too. Um, some of the crystal meth trafficking routes kind of cut through that area also. Um, you know, at night, I'd be sleeping on the floor of somebody's like ranch up in the mountains and you'd hear the buzzing of planes landing at illicit kind of strips somewhere through the forest. And, you know, you'd know that there were people with AK-47s kind of at large nearby. Um, 
and you just kind of had to hope that um, they weren't suspicious of the like weird white guy in the cowboy hat. And luckily, <laughs> people were really, really lovely, even the narcos. And um, yeah, everyone was very kind to me. Um, so yeah, so eventually, um, I, I amassed enough kind of interviews with um, the local elders and got invited to take part in local rituals. There's a very, very rich and not particularly Catholic religious life um, in that area, uh, which is really a key part of political life as well. Um, so over a series of years, you know, I, I took part in ceremonies and, and rituals and went on pilgrimages with local people, um, attended many fiestas, bought lots and lots and lots of beer for everyone. Um, and, you know, got a sense of what life is like now, which helped me to understand the interviews that I was doing with the old people um, who gave me a sense of what life was like then, um, you know, in the sort of revolutionary era between 1910 and 1940. Um, and then I matched that data up with the results of, of lots and lots of trips to archives, federal archives in Mexico City, state archives in the local provincial capitals, um, the agrarian archive um, in Mexico City as well. Uh, particularly important was the the Secretaría de Educación Pública, the, the Education Ministry Archive, um, which had all of the reports that teachers had produced on the schools in this region that were set up um, under the aegis of the revolutionary states, kind of modernizing state building project. Um, and so I, you know, I was able to make sense of these documents using the interviews that I'd done, but then the documents would also give me further questions to then take back to my interviewees who would then explain, ah, this person that appears in this document, like, ah, yes, you know, here are some details about this person's life. This is what he did or she did. You know, this is how this thing happened. Um, and eventually I kind of ended up with this fairly, I hope, balanced uh, kind of picture of, of life in the region between 1910 and 1940, um, you know, which is basically a kind of collage of, um, of reminiscences and archival information. Um, yeah, which, I mean, I'm sure it, it doesn't seem exactly like history to the, the local people who understand history in very different ways. And similarly to sort of rationalist Western historians, it might look a bit like myth and rumor compared to the sort of the straight history that um, that is still kind of practiced in the West. But like to me, it seemed balanced enough to, um, yeah, to kind of do justice to the, the whole story um, of the revolution in this kind of amazing indigenous region of mexico yeah yeah very, uh, very understandable and and if you if you read the if you read your reports it's it's very dense and uh, i'd say yeah well as far as i can judge uh, triangulated as well um so why, why why did you because the the revolution starts uh, uh early early 20th century why why did you take the whole the whole period of uh, 1910 to 1940 would you say um Initially, my interest was the, the revolution with a capital R, um, you know, between 1910, 1917, um, 
there was the overthrow of a dictatorship by revolutionary groups who then um, ended up fighting one another um, and with a military coup in the middle as well. And so it was like an armed revolution, um, lots of like guerrillas running around with rifles and um, kind of active fighting all over the country, including in these kind of mountain communities um, in the Gran Nayar. Um, but I realized that the story of the revolution was also, you know, about more than just fighting um, with with guns. There was also a kind of series of political and cultural conflicts um, that continued um, all the way through the 1920s and 30s. Um, and in some ways are still kind of ongoing today. Um, but it seemed like looking at the ways in which the governments that came out of the armed revolution um, tried to create this kind of revolutionary Mexico um, up until 1940, when the government decided that that the revolution was now officially over um, and the kind of era of the, the institutional revolutionary party kind of begins. And that's when, you know, it was decided that the revolution had run its course and it was time to like institutionalize that revolution. Um, so yeah, so 1940 was kind of a natural cutoff point. It was the, the era in which a lot of the really big experiments were taken and in which Mexico, as we know it now, kind of really took on a, a kind of recognizable shape. Um, and so, yeah, and so that's kind of when I talk about the revolution in the book, I'm talking about an armed revolution and then a sort of series of revolutionary experiments in creating a new society, a new nation state, um, a new form of government. And often these experiments kind of clashed with each other. Um, successive revolutionary leaders undid or or redid or kind of radicalized or de-radicalized things that their predecessors had done. Um, and there was a lot of internal factional squabbling at kind of top level between different leaders over the, the course of um, this kind of revolutionary political um, project. Um, all of which are often viewed as like mainly concerning, um, you know, kind of high level politics um, in Mexico, but, but all of these kind of ideological differences had hugely important and often like kind of quite counterintuitive effects on the ground um, in, in parts of, you know, the Mexican countryside in the communities that I study, um, which, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of the story that I'm telling. Um, um, so, so the, the region, as you say, it's, it's, it's remote. It's, it's, um, it's hard, hard to access, so to say, like when we talk about this, this armed phase of the revolution. So, so, uh, 1910, 1917, what was the interaction of the, of the region with the revolution's actors like? Um, I mean, basically because it was a, a fairly remote mountain region, um, it was an ideal refuge and hideout for um, the remnants of any defeated guerrilla band um, or like, you know, or any defeated formal um, army that then in its defeat scattered and turned to guerrilla warfare in order to survive. Um, 
in particular, um, it became a refuge for um, defeated remnant uh, remnants of the Viesta army of Pancho Villa's, um, you know, sort of rebel cowboy army. Um, and in part because the area spans these parts of four different states, um, there are lots and lots of kind of mountain routes that, um, yeah, that kind of connect bits of Western Mexico to each other. Um, but kind of through the, through a like back route. So, um, you know, you'd have like defeated bands would like retreat to the Sierra and, um, regroup. Um, steal the food from the local Indians um, and, you know, like rest and often kind of commit all sorts of abuses as like roving bands of soldiers tend to do. Um, and they would get their strength up and then they'd kind of go on the offensive and leave the area again to attack uh, one of the major cities like in, the, you know, in the plains below these mountains. Um, and then the next group would be defeated and would like head back up into the mountains again. Um and after a few rounds of this, um, the well, some indigenous people from this region joined these bands, um, whether that was in order to obtain weapons or just to like survive. It's better to join the soldiers than just be a constant victim of the soldiers. Um, and other groups um, kind of petitioned um you know, certain communities got in touch with revolutionary movements active like elsewhere in the country, asked them for guns and then used those guns to defeat the the sort of the soldiers who turned into bandits who were terrorizing them. Um, and then often got drunk on their own power and went and invaded the neighboring communities and <laughs> um, used their sort of newfound power to, uh, yeah, to do similar things to, um, to these roving bands of soldiers themselves, which then caused more communities to arm themselves to like defend themselves from their neighbors and you get this kind of ramping up of conflict which means that by the time that in the rest of the country the revolution is settling down about 1917 in the Gran Nayar region it's 1917 when things really start to kind of heat up um, because by this point everyone has guns um, and yeah, and, and that's actually the period of the most intense fighting um, combined with um, the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918, um, which kind of absolutely devastates the region as well, um, meaning that by the early 20s, um, the kind of whole place is in ruins, but also kind of is controlled by these warlords um, who are, um, whether they are indigenous people or they are, part of the local Spanish-speaking mestizo minority, but who have managed to persuade local indigenous people to follow them. Um, they're very much kind of in control um, in a way that that they'd never really been that sort of warlord-led um, political control in this region before. It, it had mainly like, except at periods of like, you know, during the civil wars in, in the 19th century, maybe there'd been a bit of this, but um, for the most part, the, the indigenous communities of the Gran Nayar were controlled by um, basically councils of elderly people who had um, become like masters at performing the correct rituals to ask for good harvests, good rain, 
um, peace and, and, and kind of quiet in, in the region. Um, and so there were these kind of ritual specialists and shamans um, who oversaw councils um, that kind of mediated conflicts and generally kind of led their communities. Um, and suddenly they, you know, these, these groups found themselves challenged by these younger men um, who commanded bands of, of, of other armed younger men. Um, and that sort of sets the stage for like a mixture of generational and cultural conflicts um, that are also inherently political. Um, I, I see. Um, and so we're, we're talking about, uh, well, of course, the simplification, but we're talking about four for indigenous for indigenous groups basically is yeah. there can you typify them um uh, as uh, so, some part of them are were back in the day already more pro state or was is that a, an oversimplification um a lot of the few historical studies of the region tend to talk about um these indigenous peoples as like tribes basically um and they try to identify behavior that is tribal. Um, but what I found, and I think what is what is the case today and has long been the case, is that actually communities are more important than communal identity is more important than ethnic identity. Each one of these four groups of um, so there are, you know, there are four groups who speak four languages, indigenous languages, um, and have you know, four different kind of ethnic religions and generally identify themselves as, you know, members of these ethnic groups. But each one of these four groups is then divided, split between multiple communities and it's communal identity and belonging that are much more important when it comes to alliances with the state. So amongst um, the Viraritari people, the, the Viraritari, the Wichols, um, you have one community that becomes quite closely allied with the revolutionary government in the 1920s and 30s. You have another community um, that is always rebelling. Um, it joins every rebellion against the government that there is. Um, and then the third major um, Wichol community tries to kind of stay neutral. Um, it doesn't really want to commit to either one or the other side. And as a consequence, find itself... It, constantly attacked by everyone um and so that you know that tends to be the rule the exception is um with the nayari kora people um there was a bit more of a semblance of um kind of intercommunal alliances and kind of political behavior on a on a larger than communal kind of scale at least at the beginning of this period although what i find is that by the 1940s, um, the consequences of revolutionary policies and local participation in various different rebellions, uh, popular frustration with uh, the slow pace of agrarian reform and with really disruptive schooling policies instituted by the state, uh, basically means that the Nayari people end up fighting amongst themselves to an extent that they never had before um and so having been quite different to the other three groups are suddenly like equally divided um between themselves at communal level okay and and i i 
presume that in the 1910s, the, the concept of, cacique, of caciquismo uh, already emerges, right? That's what you were speaking about earlier. Yeah, so this kind of warlordism is um, a local form of uh, a phenomenon known in Mexico as and, and other parts of Latin America as, as caciquismo. A cacique is like a kind of boss. Um, and so caciquismo is kind of more or less means boss politics. And it's um, a quite personalist um, form of doing politics in which local strongmen amass followers based on uh, personal attributes and often quite a lot of self-interest. Um, and that kind of forms the basis of their like political constituency um, and struggles over, you know, power, um, the rights to particular bits of land um, and over economic resources um, or the right to exploit certain local natural resources um, lead to conflict between kind of rival groups of, of um, caciques, of, of local bosses. Um, what's what's interesting then, because your third chapter is called state or is about state building, but I imagine that it's a, a particularly a difficult quest to do state building in an environment that is governed in such a way, right? Yeah, I mean, essentially, because because the enemy of your enemy is your friend, but then the enemy of your enemy of your enemy is also your enemy. Like it all gets very complicated. And so the state in making alliances with anyone tends to also end up making an enemy of the enemy of its new ally. And so for every victory that the state has, they, it also ends up kind of offending or, or entering into conflict with, um, you know, with, with the neighboring group. Um, which is part of the reason why, as I, as I was saying, like between the different Wichol communities, there's this constant um, one community keeps agreeing to all the government programs and they like accept teachers into the community and they volunteer um, as fighters um, against the local rebels on behalf of the government. Um, they enter into negotiations over the titling of their lands in accordance with government plans and are generally very receptive to government programs and very uh, keen to, you know, prove their loyalty through armed service. Um, and so the state does quite well in this particular community, but almost as a, a direct consequence of its successes there, the neighboring community is constantly fighting against the state, constantly joins rebels in any kind of anti-state rebellion that they can um, they don't accept teachers into their community. Um, they ambush federal soldiers. They reject any attempts at land reform, um, you know, orchestrated by government officials um, and generally kind of show themselves to be anti-government wherever possible. Um, yeah, in part because of the government's success elsewhere. Um, and this is kind of replicated across the region. Um, and so you have this kind of patchwork of of many kind of states almost, some of which are allied with the government, some of which are kind of intractable enemies of the government, um, which makes it, yeah, very complicated and difficult for the state to really assert 
its political and kind of cultural power in this region because for every show of acceptance, um, there is also a show of, of resistance. And that's one of the reasons I think that the Gran Nayar um, is famous today primarily as a region of quite autonomous, independent-minded and culturally and ethnically extremely distinct indigenous peoples um, who still have their own religions. They live in communities in which um, there is limited acceptance of state schooling. Um, there is frequent resistance to road building projects. Um, which all people have led um, the movement against um, mining in the Wirikuta region, which has become a kind of cause celebre amongst um, all sorts of aspects of the, the creative, like Mexican class. Um, and yeah, you know, th this kind of, uh, this, this sense of um, the Gran Nayar as, as a, yeah, as a really difficult region and as one of the last parts of Mexico that is kind of almost like a, a, a wilderness in some ways is rooted in, in this like, history of conflicts with and resistance to um, the state, um, even though there is also this often unrecognized history of accommodation to an alliance with the state that, that kind of goes together with the resistance. Um, it definitely makes it very difficult for state officials to really know what's going on there because mm -hmm. you know, what, that they have success here and then complete failure there. And it, in part, it just means that it's really complicated to plan projects in this area um, and so then the projects don't get done and so then that feeds this sense of, of otherness um, and of resistance and it, it's in part that I guess as well as, as the geography of the region that um, means that the, the Gran Nayar today is also a major um, drug production zone um, in which you know it's very hard for police and soldiers to assert their authority and, and effectively kind of crack down on drug production. Um, and in part, I guess, why certain groups um, and certain communities in particular, um, uh, yeah, are fairly committed to, to growing opium and um, don't have too much of a hard time about cutting deals with, uh, with narcos and uh, making alliances with cartels, preferentially to alliances with state officials and yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Um, in the, I guess in the in the second half of the twenties, the um, the area becomes um, the, the sort of kind of armed resistance uh, emerges again. Um, what's what's that about, all about? So, one of the um, most important strands of the revolutionary political project at, at high level um, was to finally break the power of the Catholic Church in Mexico um, and create a secular uh, kind of quote-unquote modern um, nation-state um, in which priests no longer had power. Um, you know, the church was seen as a direct rival to, to state kind of control. Um, and this kind of anti-clerical ideology um, became federal state policy um in well by the mid 1920s 
which led to a growing series of conflicts between um, the church and the state and also between just, you know, Catholic um, kind of grassroots um, groups who, even if the priests told them, oh, no, 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 don't, you know, don't cause any trouble. Um, we don't need any kind of violent resistance. Um, a lot of peasants didn't listen to to the sort of more passive priests um, and took up arms against what they saw as an attack on not only the church, but on their identity. Um, and by 1927, the beginning of 1927, um, enough of these small groups of peasants and ranchers had risen up against the state in defense of their identity as, as Mexican Catholics, um, that, you know, it's, it's fair to call this, uh, a rebellion or even, you know, a war. Um, it's known as the Cristero rebellion or the Cristero war or La Cristiada. Um, and it is basically the, yeah, it's the, the last really, really big um, rebellion in, in Mexican history. Um, tens of thousands of, um, of people rose up against the, the government. And most of these people are Spanish-speaking mestizo Mexicans um, who may have had, you know, very recent indigenous ancestry, but regarded themselves kind of primarily as, as Mexicans and as ethnically mestizo Mexican. Um, in the Gran Nayar, the power of the church had historically been really quite weak. Um, the priests and missionaries of the colonial period had only had very limited success in really converting local indigenous people to a recognizably Catholic religion. Um, and indeed today, uh, the, the Wichol people in particular are famous for being the least Christian um, of, of all of the different ethnic groups in Mexico. They still have <laughs> their own temples. Um, their churches are definitely not recognizably Catholic in any way. Um, you know, shamanism there is like, you know, in those communities is way more central to local life than any kind of like priestly kind of Catholic style religion. And yet because of local conflicts with state officials, um, a lot of kind of openly pagan religious, uh, you know, people with, with, you know, shamanic practices who, who, who the church regarded as, as heavens, you know, as like actual pagans um ended up joining the the catholic rebels um against the government and declaring themselves cristeros um you know as like warriors of christ the king against the satanic government um <laughs> that's you know one of the most counterintuitive i guess results of of this revolutionary experiment is that a revolution that publicly proclaims that it has come to liberate um, the poor and marginalized of Mexico from misery and oppression um, and, you know, poverty and superstition um, 
ends up so offending the most marginalized um, of all of the the sort of peasant groups in Mexico um, that these pagan Indians join the sort of Mexican equivalent of a sort of Catholic Taliban. Um, predictably, state officials were quite confused by this, um, which then led them to um, view the local indigenous people um, fighting with the Cristeros maybe as more Catholic than they really were, um, and to just blame any resistance on fanaticism and superstition um, and ignore or like overlook um, the kind of much more um, material and political beefs that local people had with, with state programs, um, which in the 1930s led the state to like commit all of the same mistakes all over again. Um, which then led a load of local indigenous people to once again take up arms against the government um, in what is known as the Second Cristero Rebellion, which in most of Mexico was a much smaller uh, and less important rebellion, but in the Gran Nayar was actually as important, if not more important, um, than the first Cristero Rebellion. Um, and for basically from 1934 all the way through the 1940s and into you know, um, at 1930s rather, and all the way up until 1941, um, there is quite concerted um, rebellion and almost a state of civil war um, in the Gran Nayar. Um, is that the joining of the the Catholic cause, so to say? Is that uh, does that happen uniformly across the whole region? Just as the state found um, it very difficult to assert its authority um, in the Gran Nayar, the Cristero rebels also found that it was very difficult to um, to meaningfully kind of take over this region because for every community or every faction within a community that joined the Cristero rebels, you know their enemies would actually decide that the state offered more material or economic or political advantages um, than the rebels did. And so then end up, um, you know, fighting on behalf of the state. And so, yeah, you have this, this kind of civil war um, scenario throughout the region as, um, you know, the, the local people take different sides um, in this national level conflict and end up fighting it out between themselves um, and, you know, while identifying as members of these national level kind of groupings on the ground, they're fighting uh, a very different war for, you know, very different and much more local regions, uh, reasons. Yeah. What I found, uh, what I found, uh, particularly gripping is that, um, you, you, I mean, you've you've spoken at least to some people who were there during the Cristero Rebellion, and um, it seems to activate still activate quite strong sentiments, not just in the people that tell you about the rebellion, but also people that like live today, like younger people, so to say. It's uh, it's it's fascinating how uh, history comes bound up uh, comes bound up uh, quite 
quickly with the mythology and 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 the identity of the of the area yeah i mean in part that's testament to a kind of a, a very real otherness in in this area the, the the very real difference that there is in the way that indigenous people in the gran nayar kind of perceive the world the universe you know reality um when compared to like mainstream mexican society so cyclical visions of of history um have always been you know when local people talk about history they they talk about cycles rather than a linear path they talk about the the repetition of events throughout time and space um you know th- there's a very different way of understanding the flow of time and the the meaning of history and the way in which things play out um and to an extent these days you know kind of western conceptions of time as more of a linear thing have have entered local kind of consciousness and there's there's a sense of like history being a kind of chronicle um but there's still also this other like cyclical thing going on um and it means that people are more inclined i think um in the gran nayar than in you know than in the 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 plains um below the mountains where mestizo people live to see um the modern violence of the drug war as kind of directly linked to or even part of um the violence of the cristero rebellion and the revolutionary period these these violent um kind of periods to us you know to 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 me as an englishman they they these violent episodes appear separated um by spans of years um whereas in the gran nayara there is still a sense that these periods of violence um are actually part of a kind of violent cycle of of history that that bridges gaps in time um and that you know la revolucion and la cristiada and la violencia y la guerra you know all of these these things that we view as as separate and distinct um to them are are part of a whole um and it meant that it was in some ways you know more difficult to do historical research there to begin with at least because the idea of history there is just different um and it forced me to kind of slightly reconsider what i was researching in in the first place and and why it was important um but it also meant you know i was able to access like really vibrant um kind of traditions um and get a sense of the way in which history history is important because in this region um people are still kind of living this history um uh, yeah it's you know it's 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 a it's a it's a living thing um that people are really part of and that is part of local identities too yeah yeah maybe because you you also said um uh, that during your 
uh, at least during your archival research, <clears throat> you went into um, the educational uh, board organization, uh, the SCP, I think it's called. Yes, the Secretariat of Public Education. Yeah, thanks. So, so um, could you say a bit more about their role? Uh, I guess toward the end of the book, it becomes more important. What, what did they try to do uh, uh, down there? Well, basically, from very early on, um, the revolutionary government that, or state that emerged from the, this, this period of armed kind of civil war um, realized that the only way to forge a new nation and create this kind of new Mexican identity was by going out into the countryside and teaching the peasants um, that they were Mexicans. Um, it was it was called, um, you know, explicitly viewed as as, as this process of, of forging a motherland, forjar patria, um, or for, forjar patria, I guess, is yeah, forging the fatherland. Um, so teachers were were viewed basically as like the the advanced guard of the revolution and of a new Mexican nationality that would triumph over local divisions and very local conceptions of, of identity and belonging um, and bring all of the multiple and very diverse populations that made up, um, you know, the, the Mexican people um, together as one. Um, and in the Gran Nayar, this involved sending out teachers to the indigenous communities um, to teach their children to speak Spanish with the idea that hopefully um, Spanish would replace the local indigenous languages. Um, they would also teach um, the indigenous people to be more efficient um, as defined by the government um, in terms mm -hmm. of their agricultural production. Um, they would more effectively exploit local resources um, in order to make Mexico as a whole a richer and more developed nation. Um, if local people primarily grew corn, you know, the state would give them seeds that would, you know, allow them to grow more corn. And like, um, if there were lots of forests, um, the state you know, led by these, the local sort of representatives of the state, the teachers, um, would bring, um, you know, saws and equipment that would allow them to chop down more trees so that they could turn the trees into wood that could then be sold, that could then be taxed, that would like create, um, you know, a, a better local economy that would then help the national economy. Um, and yeah, the teachers were at the forefront of all of this and they set up schools, um, and told local parents that um, the law now stated that they had to send their kids to these schools. And it very quickly proved very, very divisive and controversial um, because for probably thousands of years, um, if not even longer, local family units were the essential economic unit, um, you know, Kids helped in the fields. Um, they helped milk the cows, pick the corn, do the weeding, um, spin the wool into clothes, and generally, like, 
were an essential part of local economic life, um, which was a life geared towards surviving in areas of poor soil and like limited resources, uh, you know, a subsistence lifestyle that kind of worked. And the idea of suddenly every child being in a classroom, um, you know, posed a direct threat to local livelihoods. Um, it also posed a direct threat to um, cultural transmission because um, if the, the young kids weren't hanging out with their parents and grandparents, how were they going to learn the local mythological cycles and how to like be good people in the way in which you know they were expected to be in line with the local cultural norms um and so there was a lot of resistance um particularly by more conservative and more elderly people to um to these kind of school programs um especially as a lot of teachers turned out to be corrupt drunks um who beat the children and um you know most of these indigenous communities beating kids was like not actually that wasn't a cultural practice that they engaged in um it's the idea that their kids were being beaten by teachers was sort of shocking and offensive and got people really riled up um the idea that the teachers were drunks um scandalized local morals um because often the only teachers that the state could find to send up to these like kind of remote mountains were, you know, the, the worst <laughs> teachers of all who had like very little training and, uh, you know, very like shady pasts um, who often thought that they could make a quick buck by like going up and, you know, to some village and like setting themselves up as, as caciques. Um, and then because of this resistance, the state doubled down on its strategy and started to forcibly, they call it forcibly recruiting um, kids for these boarding schools. Um, local people saw this, I think quite rightly, as, as kidnapping their children and taking them out of their family units um, to be literally locked um, in, in, in boarding schools, um, often in terrible conditions, um, far away. Um, and so local, you know, the, the local indigenous people started to move further away from, you know, their villages and to sort of retreat further up into the mountains out of reach of, um, of the teachers and the kind of school inspectors who would come and knock on their doors and take away their children. So then the government started sending military patrols to accompany the teachers on these like recruitment drives. Um, And eventually you have local indigenous people declaring themselves Cristeros and ambushing these military patrols um, and killing the teachers, um, which then causes the state officials to double down even further on their prejudices against local people as ignorant and primitive um, and resistant to all progress. And you have this like ramping up of tensions um, that I guess become a key driver of the violence during the second Cristero rebellion. um, The outbreak of which is accompanied by the burning of 
um, a major new school in one of the um, Otterdam or Tepewano communities in southern Durango. Um, they kidnap a teacher um, and hold him for ransom and, and yeah, and burn this boarding school um, and announce to all of the local people that they've struck a blow for like local freedom against the, um, you know, the tyrannical government. The government is very confused and um, sees this as, as a straightforward um, Catholics didn't like the secular school, but but really it's much more about kind of indigenous identity and morality um, versus a kind of a, 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 an interfering um, and, you know, not very understanding kind of and very rigid state apparatus. Yeah. So, well, I guess we've, we've reached the end of the, of the 30 year period. Um, and if I may take a sentence from your, from your epilogue, you say, um, the nature of the regional post-revolutionary settlement, uh, it constituted an unsatisfactory compromise between the fundamentally incompatible aims of conservatives and cosmopolitans. How, what was the situation like at the end? Uh, would you, would you say, was it, was it actually like a, a, a cutoff in, in history? Well, I mean, let's just say that a volume two um, would definitely be be possible. There's a lot more history um, to be told. Um, and yeah, there's not... In some ways, there's a cutoff because the government really stops its most extreme political and social and cultural experimentation and settles down to a much more static mode of um, basically economic based state building where they forget about like really trying to change the culture too much and focus more on uh, just empowering the friendliest local caciques that they can find and then using those caciques um, to basically exploit local resources as as best they can. Um, on the other hand, um, yeah, there's there's very much this unsatisfactory compromise between the, the state and its like authority has grown by this point in the Gran Nayar. The state is way more powerful in 1940 than it had been um, in in 1910 um, in this region. But at the same time, local people are more explicitly opposed to the state in in many communities. Even some communities that had been quite closely allied to and supportive of state programs by the end of this period felt like they'd received no benefit all they'd all they'd received was violence mistreatment um and the state hadn't made good on its promises to give them legal rights to all of the lands that they claimed belonged to them um state officials had shown themselves to be more interested in making money than really like supporting local goals and so certain communities turned definitively against the state um, and remain to this day um, closed off to most state programs and very kind of resistant to any attempt um, by state officials to to enact like um, developmental policies there. Um, and at the same time, the kind of the new form of state building that's all about building sawmills um, and expanding cattle ranching um, in this area 
well, those kind of economic developments then cause increased conflict amongst local people who start to understand their lands, not just as kind of uh, historic patrimony and the space that they share with spirits and ancestors and um, they start to see their forests as sources of income and so then there's increased tension over who has the right to get that income um, which leads to the killing of many of the the most powerful caciques you know in, in 1939 are kind of dead by 1945 um, so yeah so there's definitely this unsatisfactory compromise thing going on um, there are more sort of there are more mini rebellions. Um, there is the the growth of um, a kind of drug economy, um, which in part is a direct consequence of the feeling of local people that nature is suddenly a thing that can be exploited for you know cash. Um, well, so like if you can make more money through growing opium poppy than you can through growing corn and the whole point that the government's been telling them for 30 years is to like use your your resources efficiently <laughs> why would you and and you know and it's state officials who were often like in bed with the narcos anyway um and you know often it's like these drunken teachers who are also encouraging local people to like grow opium poppy because they know that then they can get rich through selling it on to the narcos yeah like why why not um which then obviously causes the government further problems um so yeah and essentially like right now um the gran nayar is more accessible than it's ever been but also less accessible you know there are better roads there is narco violence that stops you using those roads. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more schools, but if you turn up and people, you know, in a, in a community and people think you're a teacher, um, potentially they, they don't want to, to talk to you or have anything to do with you. Um, there is um, increasing uh, kind of connections now and more connection than there's ever been before between local um, political leaders and the kind of central government. But there is also more local opposition to their own leaders than there's ever been before. And so, you know, everything remains this this complicated, fluid compromise that um, allows a lot of space for local people to maintain cultural and political autonomy and control to an extent over their, you know, ways of, of, of seeing the world, of understanding things and of differentiating themselves from the rest of Mexico, despite what the central government might want. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for giving us uh, this uh, taste of your book and also uh, giving us a a little look into the current situation. Um, I guess you know what what the final question will be. You already uh, alluded to uh, 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 volume two. Um, (laughs) What what are you working on uh, currently? So I'm currently building on the research that I did um, for this book, um, which revealed the presence of um, militias in these communities throughout the revolutionary period and beyond the revolutionary period. Groups of armed men who claimed, you know, some kind of 
support from the state um, and use that to increase their local power. Um, yeah, I, I basically realized through doing the research for this book that, that these kind of groups are not just limited to the Gran Nayar. There is a long history of, of militias, paramilitary groups, um, auxiliary forces who claim to support the government but are actually acting for, um, you know, their own kind of towards their own goals. Um, and that almost links the, the story of guerrillas roaming the mountains during the revolutionary period to this current era of drug violence, paramilitarized communities, um, and, you know, the, uh, the uprising of the autodefensas in, in Michoacan, um, of the rise of kind of armed communal autonomous police forces um, in Guerrero, um, the Policia Comunitaria. So I'm, I'm trying to, um, to research as far as COVID allows um, and to begin now writing up um, a history of, of basically non-state armed groups in Mexico um, that, that will link this revolutionary story to the, the story of, of civilian resistance to drug cartels now. Because um, although drug cartels attacking communities is a fairly new thing, um, bandits have been attacking communities, cattle rustlers have been attacking communities, rival communities have been attacking other communities, um, you know, for, for the entire 20th century and, and way back into the 19th century. And there have been responses to that that look very much like the Auto Defensa or Policia Comunitaria movements, um, you know, all the way through Mexican history too. So, yeah, joining up those dots. Um, uh, yeah, and it's moving slowly because of the pandemic, but hopefully another year or two, um, I will have that book completed and um, and I'll be ready to to get back to the more specific Gran Nayar related things for a, you know, a second volume of um, <laughs> more soldiers, more saints, and more shamans. <laughs> <laughs> more. All right. Thanks once again. I, uh, I can't wait. And um, well, who knows? We'll, we'll talk again next time. Thank Have you. Have a for great, uh, great Friday, uh, Nathaniel. Yeah, you too. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs>